you guys. Our scripture for today is Revelation 8, verses 6 through 13. Then the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded the trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded like a trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. A fourth star sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck. A third of the moon and a third of the stars, so the third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. This is the word of God. What do we do with a text like this? It is a, uh, Stan, um, I appreciate, he, he put a ton of work into breaking out Revelation into a preaching schedule, but he didn't make it easy on us. Um, this passage is actually a part of uh, chapters 8 to 11 that were meant to be read out loud in one sitting. And so it's going to feel, and I want to warn you, that it's going to feel a little bit like we're just harping on the same ideas of judgment and wrath and justice. And that's, that's because that's what these next chapters are about. And so I'm just w- giving you a little fair warning that this is a challenging text. But I think what we're going to see in that is that all of it, when read in the context of the book of Revelation, is always going to point back to the final hope that we have in Christ. And we're going to look at that tonight. Um, the funny part, too, uh, I think about this passage is we get to the part where the eagle talks and says, whoa, 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 and is, is saying this is so sad because it's going to get worse. So tonight's the easy part, and then next week if you come back, that's when all hell breaks loose, literally. The demons are let free, and it gets really crazy. So it'll be really exciting next week. You should come. Um, I want you to imagine for a second, to help give us a little bit of perspective, if you've ever been to a professional football game, one of the things that you notice at the stadium is that there are cameras everywhere. Um, They're they getting shots of people up close. You see these cameras that are like on these beams uh, that are like sliding. They've got drones. They've got blimps, right, with cameras. They've got a camera on the pylon so that when the quarterback makes the diving play into the end zone, you get to see it up close. There are so many different angles on offense, on defense, that you are seeing a hundred different shots of the same game. I believe John, in a sense, is doing that in the book of Revelation. He is giving us different angles and perspectives to see what is happening on earth throughout history. 
I believe he's describing the ongoing conflict of the kingdom of God clashing with the kingdom of man or the kingdom of Satan. And that this is all happening between the original coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. This is taking place throughout history. At one time, he'll, he'll focus on a particular event, and then on another time, he'll focus on a particular person. But we're seeing different perspectives at different places, all covering what has happened. I believe um, in my in- interpretation of this, that this is what is happening, that he is seeing between the first and second coming of Christ all that has transpired, the conditions, circumstances, situations, and environments people find themselves in between those two events. So I want to take a quick minute here. I have a little um, chart. If you remember, we talked about the seven seals, okay? And it was, you're going to notice that this language is a bit similar to what we read there. All three of these sets of seven are broken up in the same way. There's the first four. There's a bit of an interlude. There's two, another little interlude, and then there's the final seventh seal, trumpet, and bowl. Right now, we are in the first four trumpets. But the fact that all three of these follow this similar pattern, I think, is a clue and an indicator for what John is trying to do. If you read the, the original Greek language, and you, actually, if you go back and read in the Hebrew language, back in Daniel and Ezekiel, when they use prophetic apocalyptic language, the grammar actually indicates when the author is using uh, poetry or prose. And so you can actually get a sense based on the original author uh, of, of those different books of what and how and what it's trying to be communicated. And I think why that's important is it changes the way we read this. Because if we were to read it literally, these are some pretty terrifying, almost surreal events that are taking place. But I don't think John meant for us to interpret it literally, and I don't think the church historically has interpreted it that way either. Um, I want to go back a few weeks. If you remember, when we were talking about big picture revelation, we were talking about the, diff- the four different main perspectives of revelation. Okay, you had the historical view, which is a, a minority view. You had the preterist view, which is also, a, many people hold that view. Um, that's the view that Jesus um, is, is, when Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem, that that is what John is referring to in all of this. And then there is the, um, the amillennial view, which is a view that um, I tend to, to lean towards, and we can talk about that in a second. But there's also the futurist view, and I want to address this because it's, I think it's really important. I have a graph here. I took a screenshot. There's a little guy in the corner. But um, this is the, most, the clearest graph or I could find or, or, or um, timeline. The futurist view has some variation within it, but for the most part, it begins Jesus' resurrection, ascension. There's the church age, which remember the letters to the churches, okay, that we, we read earlier this year. Um, there's the moment where Jesus raptures the church, okay? So this is the premillennial view. Jesus raptures the church. There is a seven-year tribulation, okay? And you see that part in the graph. Those who hold to the futurist view of Revelation believe that everything we're reading about right now is happening chronologically. And so the first seven years um, are, the, are the first part. There's the second seven years, and the, not, sorry, seven seals. There's the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. All of those are happening within this space. You have Jesus' second coming, the millennial reign, lake of fire, all of that. Now, I say this with as much humility as I can muster. I think I could, I could absolutely be wrong 
And this could be the way we should interpret Revelation. But after all of my study, after all of the ways in which I think um, throughout history the church has interpreted Revelation with what I'm learning about in our commentaries and everything I've looked at, I don't know that this is how we should interpret it. Um, as I'd mentioned, I tend to have a more amillennial perspective. If you want to go to the next, here's the, the graph for the amillennial view. This means that after the first coming of Jesus, when Jesus enters into the earth, we are living in this millennium, right? We are in um, this. The great tribulation is not set to just be a seven-year period, but is going to be multiple times throughout church history when the church faces persecution, when the church faces calamity, when God's judgment is exercised in the earth in real time. This means that someday what is going to happen is exactly the words of what Jesus said, that he will one day return. It actually fits, I think, much more clearly. The vision of Revelation in the words of Jesus in Luke fits so much more harmoniously when we consider that this is how we are to interpret these words. Why does this matter? I think uh, as a matter of interpretation and how we interpret a difficult text like this, it matters because when we read it, it's not simply words about something that's going to happen in the future for a, a different group of Christians because we'll be raptured up and we'll have to experience it. But John's words bear on us today because we will experience great tribulation on some level. I think there are people in the world right now who are experiencing great tribulation. And so it has implications for our discipleship. It has implications for how we exist and, and, and walk in the world because it matters because I believe that we are, in fact, living in the end times because the end times is all times. Um, I believe it's not merely about the events at the end of history, but that we are living in all of history preceding the second coming of Christ. So, that said, we now see those seven different, um, the seven trumpets, the seven seals, the seven bowls. We see them almost as different camera lenses on a football field, right? Getting different shots throughout history that show us different views of what is happening in the world. I think um, Eugene Peterson helps us here. I have a quote from him. If you could pull that up for me, Jenny. Um, I don't know if you can remove that, the reveal. There we go. Thank you. He says, I do not read Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. Everything in Revelation can be found in the pre previous 65 books of the Bible. I read Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. I once heard my Old Testament professor, Bruce Walke, say that the faith is living with an imagination sanctified by God's word. May we have our imagination sanctified and enlarged by the book of Revelation. Now, let me just clarify. The first quote is Eugene. The second quote uh, I got from a different guy who was quoting Eugene. Sorry, that was confusing. I should have quoted both people there. Um, but the point is this. When we read this, okay, instead of going through and trying to piece together what is this symbol? What is the water turning to blood? And we're going to do a little bit of that tonight. But instead of trying to figure out what exactly every symbol means, what I would rather do is to allow those images to sort of stir our imagination, to sort of uh, um, make us feel what, what John was trying to capture with that, because logic will not do us justice. Because this is really getting at the heart of what John was experiencing and seeing that was so overwhelming. 
And so that's my encouragement, is as we read through chapters 8 through 11, it's going to take us a couple weeks, three weeks, I think. Um, I want to encourage you to feel them in the same way you might feel poetry or a song. It's meant to be read aloud and, and to, to move our emotion in ways that logic cannot. So, setting the table. In light of that framework, what in the world are these seven trumpets? Interestingly, trumpets have played a major role in Old Testament history. They played a major role in, in God's purposes, in fact. When Israel uh, lay claim to the promised land, the priests were instructed to blow the trumpets of holy war seven times for seven days. Interesting. Seven times, seven days, trumpets. Seems like a connection, right? On the final day when Israel is encircling, uh, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, when Israel was circling Jericho, you remember this story, right? They circled Jericho how many times? Seven. And then after, um, after the seventh trumpets blew, after the seventh trip around the city, the walls of the city crumbled. You see this pattern all throughout the Old Testament, sets of seven associated with trumpets. Throughout history, trumpets were a, a sort of representation of God intervening in history to defeat his enemies. So when God intervenes, we see these sets of seven time and time again. The second interesting note about the trumpets is that they are limited, in this case, in the devastation that they bring. If you notice, in verse 8, 7, it was a third of the earth that was affected. In verse 8, it was a third of the sea. In 10, it was a third of the rivers, the springs of water that were judged. Uh, in 12, it was a third of the sun, of the moon, of the stars. And there's this repetition of this one-third. Now, I don't think he's trying to be mathematically precise, okay? I don't think it was literally a, trying to say one-third exactly um, that 33, one-third percent, whatever it is. Um, his point is that his judgments were not full, meaning that he spared two-thirds even amidst the judgment. So while there was certainly judgment that is being brought, there is mercy in that not all were being judged. I think John is trying somehow to describe a certain reality um, through these symbolic images in these passages. Um, Eugene Peterson says this, and he has a great book called Reverse Thunder on Revelation that I've, I've used a little bit. One of the things he says is that we don't actually learn a new truth here, but we do learn it in a new way. What does he mean? In a word, we are learning about judgment. What is being imagined by these visions is that judgment is real and that is terrifying. And we cannot, we do a disjustice. I know this is like not a fun topic or maybe a fun sermon to preach, but judgment is not something we can just gloss over because it is a part of God's character. And so we need to go back actually to the words of Jesus because we can't know fully what God is like without looking at Jesus. Remember, Jesus existed before the foundations of the earth, before the earth was created with God himself. He has existed for eternity. The triune God has always been. And so when Jesus speaks, we need to listen. Look what he says in Luke 12, 49. If you have your Bible, turn with me. Luke 12, verse 49. He says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. That's quite a line. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. 
But he also says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Notice with Jesus, you have this fire. You have this judgment along with what? His desire to save the lost. We have judgment and mercy held hand in hand. You see, here's the twist. Judgment, we think of as a negative, terrible, awful thing. And for good reason, when you read these passages, they sound, it sounds awful. But judgment is actually good news. Why in the world, how could judgment be good news? You see, judgment cares about the oppressed. Judgment means that God cares about the oppressed. Think about Think about the Israelites when they were stuck in Egypt. They were oppressed by Pharaoh. They were forced to be slaves. They were treated horribly. Pharaoh was a tyrant and in many ways a monster. What does God eventually do? He sends judgment to Egypt by means of plagues. And you'll notice some connections to these plagues as well as some of these seven trumpets. right? But because God desires to see the slaves free, desires to see the Israelites freed, right? he sends judgment on the oppressor. And what do you know, eventually leads the Israelites to the promised land. Judgment means that God thinks our choices matter. That we actually, they actually bear weight. That, that there's a, such a thing as morality. That our decisions have consequences. That evil and sin are not just some ubiquitous term that is irrelevant. But actually, that judgment means that God is good and will not tolerate evil forever that there will be justice in this world. Revelation 8 through 11, what we will see is that judgment is being worked out on the stage of history. This is all of history until Jesus comes again. We will see judgment in its various forms. Now, remember last week, uh, Joseph uh, preached and and. There's that moment where there is 30 seconds of silence when the lamb breaks the seal, and for half an hour, eternity stops, and it's silent in heaven. It's a bit jarring because it goes from this silence to these seven trumpets, these loud trumpets. The first trumpet, we're going to look at these real quick. The first trumpet, what was it? Hail and fire mixed with blood. What a weird combo. One-third of the earth and its vegetation is burned. If you remember, according to Exodus 9, the seventh plague plague rained down on the land of Egypt, hail and fire, and somehow strangely mixed together uh, land, trees, and plants. Right, The element of blood on the trumpet may derive from the, the Egyptian plague, which turned what? The Nile into blood. Do you remember that? The water turned to blood. It's a horrifying picture. I remember being in Sunday school class as a kid, and they'd show videos of that, and I'd just be like, ugh. It's like the most terrifying thing you could ever imagine. Um, The second trumpet, we have a great mountain burning with fire thrown into the seas. And one-third of the sea and creatures and ships are affected. Notice, it's something like a great mountain burning with fire. Something like a mountain. Is this this literal? Is there actually a mountain being thrown into the sea? It may be what we're seeing here, and and this is very reminiscent of some of the same literature we see in Ezekiel and Daniel, but what we're seeing here um, is what we call prophetic hyperbole, okay? It's a sort of language that describes what is happening in a symbolic way, not a literal way. 
but it probably is a descriptive of seasons of history where there's devastation, personal loss, instability. Historically, we can point to times in history where that existed. We can point to literal plagues that wiped out a ton of people. We can point out to wars where there was devastation. We can look at civilizations that abused other people and, and all kinds of horrible things in all of world history. Let us remember uh, the psalmist, too. It says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth shall change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though its mountains quake in its swelling pride. You see, when you read the Psalms, no one believes um, that the psalmist is describing multiple mountains literally slipping into the sea. It's a proverbial expression. It's, it's describing a time of turmoil, and that's pretty um, easily understood. And I think that's actually what John is trying to do here. Um, mountain in Revelation, it's often a, me- uh, a, a reference or a metaphorical description of an earthly kingdom. Okay, we see three examples of this in Revelation. In, verse, in chapter 14, 17, we'll get to those in the coming weeks. But I believe that this trumpet is actually a reference to the judgment on evil kingdoms on earth that oppose the kingdom of Christ. Third trumpet. A great star. Wormwood. It's a strange thing. Fall from heaven, and one-third of the rivers and springs of waters poisoned. What is the star called Wormwood. This is actually echoing Jeremiah uh, 9 and 23. There God says, Behold, I will feed these people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. Um, Wormwood is a bitter herb. It can be poisonous, um, but oftentimes not fatal. And so unless it's drunk into excess, um, likely what is being said here is that Israel has polluted themselves with idolatry. It hasn't yet killed them, but it will eventually. You see, this trumpet is a warning. It's saying, look, you have polluted yourself with this idolatry. We'll get, it's hard because next week is when he kind of wraps it all together. But essentially, this trumpet is a warning sign saying, look, you keep bowing to these false idols. It's not going to end well for you. I'm telling you this not because I hate you, but because I love you. And I'm showing you mercy. It is a warning sign. Fourth trumpet. One-third of the sun and the moon stars are darkened, disrupting the natural rhythm of the day. This judgment also seems to be uh, reflecting the ninth plague, which is when darkness covered over the land in Egypt in Exodus 10. Um, Again, literal, symbolic. Um, If it is symbolic, what is it symbolic of? I'm I'm not not entirely sure, and scholars don't seem to, to really have a grip on what exactly that is. But basically, we can boil all of it down to Nature has lost its mind, right? We're describing um, things just are out of control. The, the order of the day, night and day is getting confused. You've got um, water and fire and, and mountains falling into the sea and all of these different ways in which nature has lost its order. Notice the progression. Earth to food supplies, seas to commerce, drinking water, and the light that we see. And then we have the eagle who talks and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, I'm telling you, I spent probably way too long trying to figure out what this eagle meant. Um, And basically what I, uh, the only thing I could conclude is that the Old Testament often employs the image of an eagle when describing judgment. 
But outside of that, I couldn't find a single scholar who knows what that eagle means. Um, I, we just often see that as a sign of judgment throughout the Old Testament. So if you, figure, if you find something out, come tell me because I want to know. I'm still trying to figure out what the eagle represents exactly. Now, like I uh, alluded to earlier, next week, uh, chapters 5, or not, uh, sorry, trumpets 5, 6, and 7 are terrifying. And so it's weird. It's going to feel weird because we're pausing midway. And I, I could just leave you with that. That's kind of sad and depressing to just list off all these judgments and then leave you. And so I want to kind of close and wrap this up with, with this, this idea about judgment because I think what we're going to see as we get a bigger picture of this is that God's judgment and God's mercy cannot be separated. You see, God's judgment in many ways is actually an act of mercy. God's judgment in these trumpets is a mercy towards you and towards me. And I, I want to show a quick uh, video clip. This is from a, a film um, some of you may have seen um, but it's a really powerful scene towards the end of the film, and I'll let the I'll let the the, the Mr. Chapman. Yeah, what is go. the state's position on this motion? Your Honor, may I approach the bench? Yes. Your Honor, um, I'm troubled. You're troubled? Troubled. Because I know the people in this community want to go to sleep at night, knowing that if someone has committed a terrible crime, then that someone is going to be punished. But um, in this case, Your Honor, I have um, taken another look at the evidence. And, uh, Mr. Chapman, please. And the state does not object to the motion, Your Honor? <laughs> to be clear, Mr. Chapman, are you joining the motion to dismiss all charges today? Yes, Your Honor, I am. <laughs> Order. Please order. Well, y'all made my job easy today. In the case of the People versus McMillan, the court hereby grants the defendant's motion. All charges against you are dismissed, Mr. McMillan. <laughs>
So if you aren't familiar with that story, it's based on a true story. It was, it was turned into a book called Just Mercy, and then they made a film about it. But Walter uh, was on death row for a crime he didn't commit. And in that moment, you'll notice that the attorney, the prosecuting attorney, yell out a cry for what? He wanted justice. He says, I want the people in our city to be able to sleep at night knowing that this killer has been put away, that they're not going to do any more harm. But he also knew in his heart that Walter was not guilty. It's a really, really powerful moment, and it's, it's based on a true story, which is really incredible. But I want you to think for a second. Throughout the film and, and, and the book as well, you see he experienced injustice and racism. He's treated as less than human. He isn't believed because um, the prejudice in that situation. But in the end, after much injustice, Walter had true justice. The truth, in the end, had the final word. Unfortunately, unlike that case, sometimes in this life, we don't always see justice the way we'd like to. We see people who are hurt or, or who are oppressed, and, and oftentimes they don't get their, their justice in this lifetime. But the beautiful thing about the book of Revelation is, is the way that it ends. You know, we're reading it uh, in, by, in chunks, and so it's kind of like we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. The beautiful thing is that in the end, God has the final word. And that final word is a word of justice, where everything is made right in the end, and there is a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more injustice, there is no more judgment, and all, all tears are wiped away. It is a beautiful, beautiful picture. I'm excited to get to the end of Revelation. It's going to be fun. The beauty of the God that we serve is that God is a God who is full of judgment and mercy, and those things cannot be separated. The beauty of judgment is that it leads us to repentance. It's an act of mercy because in that moment, in the moment when God cannot tolerate evil and he does something about it, it allows for people to see this and maybe have a wake-up call and say, I need to turn away from my idolatry, turn away from the things that I have turned to, and turn back to God because he is our only hope. It's a reminder that our sin inevitably, eventually will kill us. This is why the Apostle Paul says the wages of sin is death, that ultimately the things that we cling to, the vices we have, are in a sense killing us from the inside out. But the good news of the gospel is that we know what happens when we give our life and we offer it over and surrender to the God of the universe. There is grace, there is mercy in Jesus Christ. It's what James means when he writes, mercy triumphs over judgment. That ultimately the judgment poured out on Christ on the cross spares you and I the judgment that we deserve. It's the ultimate act of mercy found in the person of Jesus. Where the wrath of God is satisfied in his death. Death is defeated. The ultimate act of mercy makes a way for you and me to enter into the family of God. That's the greatest gift. And that is why judgment is good news. It may not seem like it, but in the end it is. What is this judgment? The fire 
the blood, the water, the famine, the darkness. It's a warning light to turn away from our sin, to accept the gift of mercy that came at the cost of a cross. Mercy and judgment. You can't have one without the other. To be continued next week. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would turn away from idols, the things in our life that we hold um, dear, that we cling to when we, when we feel stressed, when we feel um, like they give us some sort of false sense of security and comfort. And I pray we would toss those aside and run to you, receiving the forgiveness you freely offer to us. And so, Lord, we continue to repent. We continue to turn away from our old ways, to die to our old self, and to surrender to you, the one who gives us new life, the one who carries us, the one who saved us from death and offered us eternal life. Jesus, we continually give our life to you. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for all the ways in which um, you minister to us in times of, of distress we're mindful right now of, of the chaos in the world, specifically what we're seeing on the news day in and day out of what's going on in Ukraine and that conflict. We pray that you'd be near to your church, to the EPC church that's under threat right now. We pray for, for, that, for that pastor and that congregation. Lord, we pray for um, all the Christians right now who are suffering persecution. We don't, maybe don't know what that's like, but Lord, we, for a moment, we, we, we say we hear them, we empathize, we, we sense the ways in which um, you are near to them in, in times of great distress. Lord, we, we pray for justice, for biblical justice to take place throughout the world. Thank you for your son, Jesus, for your beautiful name. Amen.